Are you ready to overcome the complexities and burdens that come with your success? Join the team at Centura Wealth Advisory in the Live Life Liberated podcast. Now, on to the show. Hello and welcome to Live Life Liberated from the team from Centura Wealth Advisory. Chris Osmond is on the mic today. What's going on, Chris? Hey, Eric. How you doing? Glad to be here. I'm doing fantastic. It's good to be back with you. You brought a guest to the show today. Who'd you bring on? I brought Jeremy Held, uh, who is the managing director at Bow River Capital. Oh, all right. Well, what are you guys talking about? I know you always have some sort of specific topic that you guys are going to cover. What What is that topic today? Yeah, you know, we've, we use uh, alternative investments quite a bit at Centura. We've already discussed uh, private real estate and private credit. So today we're really going to focus on demystifying private equity and give uh, our clients and listeners a, an introduction to Bow River Capital as well. All right. Sounds good. I'm here to learn with the audience. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Eric. And, you know, as just mentioned, today, we're really going to focus on introducing private equity as an asset class today. And so we're going to start with defining really what is private equity, uh, as well as provide an overview in terms of both access uh, and how that's led to different uh, uh, investment vehicle evolution. Then we'll discuss the current and future landscape for private equity. And then we'll wrap up talking about the importance of due diligence in alternatives as a whole, but as germane to this called private, private equity. As previously mentioned, I'm excited to for our discussion today and to introduce our guest, Jeremy Held. As mentioned, he is the managing director at Bow River Capital, and he's charged with running the Bow River Evergreen Fund which also happens to be the newest addition to Centura uh, Wealth Advisory's alternative investment platform. Uh, and with that, it's an honor to introduce everyone to Jeremy. Jeremy, thanks for joining us today. Will you please uh, share your background with all of us as well as provide everyone with the introduction to who, who is who is Bow River Capital? Yeah, thanks, Chris. And thanks, Eric. Uh, it's, it's really great to be here. Really appreciate it. So I, I've been in the asset management business for almost 25 years. Um, I, I previous to, to Bow River, I worked as the chief investment officer at, at a Denver-based firm. We're, we're based here in Denver called Alps Advisors. And I was the director of research and, and chief investment officer there. And we managed about $20 billion in assets and about 40 funds. And, and what was really interesting over that time period was I got to see just how dramatically the the investment landscape was changing. You know, when I got in the business in the mid '90s, and if you wanted to invest in growth and innovation in, in in the U.S., you could do that predominantly through the public markets, and you could invest in large company stocks or medium company stocks or small cap or even micro cap stocks. And it's amazing how much that's changed over just you know two and a half decades. And now private markets are such a huge part of the ecosystem, which was really what what caused me to join Bow River and to launch this this Evergreen Fund. And and Bow River is a Denver-based private equity firm. We manage um, about $2.3 billion in assets, mostly on behalf of individuals and families. And we invest in what we call middle market and lower middle market. That's just fancy terms for for small and medium-sized companies that happen to be private. And we think it's a, a huge opportunity set for investors. And, and we're excited to uh, to be helping investors, we think, build better portfolios by adding private companies to their mix. Great. Thank you for that introduction, Jeremy. Really appreciate it. With that, let's let's jump right in. And before really moving to private equity, I want to paint the picture a little bit where we stand today from both a market and a economic perspective. Because you know, it's been it's been a tough year. 
right? I think we all can agree that the Fed definitely missed the mark in terms of inflation being transitory uh, as it continues to be well above 8% on a headline basis. And then when you just strip out energy and food, which all of us pay, uh, but the Fed likes to look at that core, continues to continue to ramp up and, and uh, uh, deliver higher readings uh, above 6%. That's really set the stage to increase rates from essentially zero at the beginning of the year to, to roughly three and a quarter today. And given the strength of the labor market, that that sets the stage for an additional 75 basis point increase in November, as well as potentially 50 or even maybe 75 again in December, bringing that Fed funds target up to four and a half percent. Additionally, the Fed's also unloading 80, or sorry, $95 billion a month from their balance sheet, which ballooned to roughly $9 trillion on the heels of COVID. Of course, that's caused mortgage rates to, to spike over you know, to roughly 7%, which has caused the, the housing market to uh, start to deflate a little or finally cool, which I think is, is, is welcome if you've been trying to buy a house the last two years. GDP, has consecutively logged two negative quarters of uh, GDP growth, which by many uh, definition would indicate we're currently in a recession. Uh, the leading economic indicators continue to print negative readings month over month, and the Chicago PMI fell below 50 a couple of weeks ago, indicating, again, the economy is in contraction or in a recession. I think the lone bright spot that I mentioned really is is the labor market and and the strength the resilient strength there. Of course, with that strength also comes investor anxiety because that's been the fuel to the Fed's policy. You know the the good news is bad news phenomenon where strong labor market prints is bad news for investors because that's saying, hey Fed, keep your foot on the accelerator, keep raising rates, keep unloading your balance sheet. Uh, and what that has done to the dollar is starting to impact asset prices, both domestically and, and globally. It's impacting economic growth, making our exports less attractive. And all this is pushing public market securities down significantly. And the S&P roughly down 22%. Bonds, surprisingly, uh, on track for their worst year ever of more than 15% year to date. It's been really hard for public market investors. If you're in a 60-40 portfolio, so that's just 60% allocated to the S&P 500, 40% to uh, the Barclays Ag, which is, is the proxy for bonds uh, in the public market, you're down roughly 18% year to date. And if you're invested in growth stocks, which tend to be much more interest rate sensitive, you're down over 31. So, it's been very difficult. Fortunately, for a lot of our clients, uh, the we, at Centura, we adopt an institutional asset allocation framework. So they've had a heavy exposure to alternatives. As mentioned, we've already touched on private uh, on private real estate and private credit. Today, we really want to focus on private uh, private equity. So, Jeremy, with that backdrop of where we sit today. Can you start by defining defining what is private equity and how does it differ from the public equity markets? Yeah, no, great, great background, Chris. And yeah, you, you definitely hit on some of the challenges that we're facing um, from, from a headline perspective. And I think one of the biggest differences, you know, people, when they talk about private equity, it's important to note that the second word in that phrase is equity, right? You're, you're owning the equity interest in companies. And so the question is, well, 
What's the difference between owning you know, private equity and public equity? And there's a lot of differences, but I think one of the most important, and it, hit, it hits on something that you addressed earlier in your comments about sort of where the, the public markets have gone and where, where bonds have gone this year, is that you know there's there's a saying that that the public markets are a voting mechanism in the short term and a weighing mechanism in the long term and that you know sentiment really drives prices in the near term and then ultimately fundamentals drive them in the long term and the nice part about private markets and you maybe can think about this as an, an analogy with your house you know it's probably a good thing that investors and homeowners can't sell their house at the drop of a hat, or they can't buy a house at the drop of a hat. You actually have to see home prices move based on what willing buyers and sellers will agree to at an arm's length transaction. And that's essentially what happens in the private markets. And so private markets by and large are just, you know, it's it's, it's private companies, private equity, or they're private businesses. There's 130,000 private businesses in the US today. There's, you know, there's 30,000 private businesses that have you know over 100 employees there's there's even more that have you know 100 million in revenue and these are just businesses that trade hands on the private market as opposed to the public market and there's a big benefit there and that essentially those businesses typically don't get as impacted by short term sentiment both positive or negative i mean one thing i would say about the market this year is that a lot of what's happening in the public markets in our view is a healthy reset of some of the excess that took place. And if you, if, if you think about what happened in the great financial crisis 15 years ago, is you had excesses that really weren't checked until it was too late. And when the excesses don't get checked, you have a much deep and darker depression and recession. We think some of the excesses that are getting pulled out of the market today are, are healthy when you think about housing and labor. And I think what's nice about the private markets is you're still investing in those innovative companies that have the ability to grow but you're doing it in our view in a less volatile way because it's just not as impacted as much by investor sentiment or what they read on the news. Um, the headlines are, are, are definitely challenging today, but we don't think that the world is nearly as bad of a place as what you might read on, on, on television. Companies can still make money. Companies can still earn a profit. And you just have so many more of them in the private markets. And it's a great opportunity set. Yeah, no, great, great point. I think especially when you look at the opportunity in in public markets, you know, I think there. I remember when the Wilshire five thousand actually was five thousand stocks. Right. Uh, you know, today I think it's what less than four thousand versus you know the that that astronomical number of private companies just in the U.S. alone. So the opportunity to to find you know some value and extract and deliver that to clients in the private markets, I think, far exceeds those of the public. Yeah, we would agree. And I think what's changed too, Chris, is look, you've, you've got some great public companies and then they're, then they're companies that we're all familiar with from Facebook to Amazon to Apple, Microsoft, Google, Tesla. You know, these are companies that are either sort of at or, or larger than a trillion dollars in value. But what that has done is it's really skewed the public markets to have much more of a large cap bias. And when you think about the centers of growth and innovation and the life cycle of a company, Investing in private markets gives you the opportunity to invest in these companies before they could become the next Microsoft or Google or Facebook or Tesla. And if you think about the life cycle and evolution of a company, investors shouldn't just be limited to that cycle of growth after a company becomes public. There's so many things that happen to improve the growth and the revenue and the profit of a company before they go public. 
And that's really what a lot of entrepreneurs, if you think about any entrepreneur in their life, most of them have not been entrepreneurs of, of public companies. They've been they've been a private companies. And historically, there's just never been a way for the average investor to tap into that growth and innovation. And that's all changing, which is really exciting. Yeah. And I think that's a great segue, Jeremy, to the discussion on the evolution. You know, looking back just 20 years ago, seeing only institutional investors like endowments and pensions were able to access private markets, particularly private equity. And you mentioned IPO, and it seemed like the only way you could get access to an IPO is if you were at a wirehouse like Merrill or, or Morgan Stanley. And today, through the evolution of investment vehicles, as well as the access outside of just institutional, now investors are getting access pre-IPO through the through the private markets and aren't necessarily being captive with the wirehouses. Can you talk a little bit about the evolution between access uh, to in for investors beyond institutional, and how that has led to the development evolution of the investment vehicles to access such markets. Yeah, no, it's a it's a great point, Chris. And I think what's really interesting is that if you look at, you know, private markets and private companies aren't aren't new. I mean, you know, private businesses existed, you know, for for hundreds of years before public companies did. But what's changed in the last 20 years is exactly what you hit on, which is access. And it really comes down to some of the archaic rules around how private investment vehicles were structured. And historically, they were limited to a certain number of investors. So if you were launching a private investment vehicle that was going to go invest in private companies, oftentimes you were limited to only 2,000 investors or different other vehicles were limited to 500 investors. In fact, some were limited to only 99 investors. And so if you're going to go out and, and, and buy a portfolio of private businesses and you need a significant pool of capital to buy those private businesses, you might need $100 million or $500 million or a billion dollars to go buy a portfolio of businesses. If you only have 500 or, or 1,000 or 2,000 investors, you have to limit your investor base to investors that can write very large checks. It's not uncommon in the institutional world, the pension world for these pensions to commit 10 million, 25 million, 50 million, $100 million to private equity and uh, in investment funds. And really what's changed is the proliferation of registered investment vehicles that invest in private markets. And essentially that's just a, a, a fancy legal term for mutual funds, you know, mutual funds that invest in private markets. And, and the great thing about mutual funds is that they have an unlimited number of investors. And once you have an unlimited number of investors, you don't have to worry about only targeting investors that can write seven, eight, nine, ten-figure checks. You can really lower those investment minimums and broaden the landscape. And that's exactly what we've done at Bow River. We have um, a, a private equity investment fund, and we have an unlimited number of investors. And that's allowed us to take our minimum investments from what you typically see in the private equity world, anywhere from a million to ten million dollars, is on the low end. We we offer our minimums at fifty thousand dollars. And what that does is it makes the asset class, the investable universe of private markets, so much more accessible. And when you think about the number of households that can now invest in, in the private markets relative to what they would do in a, in a traditional private vehicle, uh, it's really exponential in terms of the opportunity. Oh, great. And would Jeremy, do you mind sharing a little bit uh, about the Bow River Evergreen Fund and what what is Bow River's investment philosophy and you know, why is it beneficial to access private equity through a vehicle such as the Bow River Evergreen Fund versus trying to build a programmatic 
uh, a private equity allocation by subscribing to several uh, traditional drawdown private equity funds and and so forth. Yep. No, great question, Chris. And I think, you know, as you think about the evolution on traditional asset classes, you know, and in, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago, investors just built portfolios with individual stocks. And there was a huge uh, benefit in terms of the mutual fund structure becoming available because what that allowed was investors for a smaller pool of capital to be able to buy a diversified portfolio of public equities. The Evergreen Fund at Bow River is the same concept, but it's really applied to private markets. And I think the biggest benefit that investors get from, from an Evergreen Fund in general, and I think the Bow River Evergreen Fund specifically, is that diversification. You know, if you invest in a typical private equity fund, not only are the minimums, you know, $1 million to $10 million for just that fund, those funds typically only invest in eight to 10 companies. And they also typically are invested in one sector of the market. One thing that private equity has done really well in the last 20 years is specialization. More than 60% of private equity firms invest in just one sector of the market. So it's not uncommon to see a healthcare private equity firm or a software private equity firm or a niche manufacturing private equity firm. So to truly build a diversified portfolio of just investing in private equity funds, it takes really, you know, on the low end, 20 to $30 million to build that portfolio, all the way upwards to 50 to $100 million just to build a diversified private market portfolio. And so the biggest benefit that investors get is just that diversification. In our fund, we don't have any single private equity, private company that is greater than 3% of the fund. We don't have any single private equity manager that's greater than 10% of the fund. And there's no private equity fund that's greater than 5%. And so we're building that same level of diversification that I think investors are used to on the public side through mutual funds, but building it into a private market portfolio. And the second piece is that we really try and build diversification by something that's called vintage year. And a vintage year is the year that a private equity company was started, a year that, that a fund was started, that it started investing in, in companies. And one of the biggest risks in private equity is vintage year. What year did that fund start raising capital? If you look at the private equity performance over the past 25 years, there are certain vintages that are better than better than others. If you invested in 2005, 2006, 2007, those vintages right before the financial crisis, those weren't as good in private equity because you had to wait longer for those companies to be sold. You had to wait to get through the financial crisis and then come out the other side. By contrast, 2008, 9, 10, and 11 were great vintages. Now, the reality is that it's hard to pick which vintages are going to be the best. And so what the largest and most sophisticated and most successful institutional investors do is they invest in every vintage. They have a very programmatic allocation that allows them every year to invest almost in a dollar cost average way to invest in every vintage in the private markets. And the Evergreen Fund allows people to do that as well, just with much lower minimums and much less capital that you have to put to work. No, that that makes a lot of sense, uh, Jeremy. And there are clearly a lot of benefits, but let, let's shift gear. And there's there's a little bit of a you know a myth that I want to dispel. And there's kind of three negatives that investors or other you know traditional private equity sponsors may point to when you look at an evergreen vehicle uh, such as the Bow River uh, Evergreen Fund. And that's oh, it's it's a fund of funds, so you're getting watered down returns. There's higher expenses, and it's really only applicable for smaller investors. 
because it's giving access at a lower entry point. I, I'm not in, in that camp, but would love to give you the opportunity to dispel those myths. Yeah, sure. No, I'm, I'm glad you asked that because I think one thing that's interesting is that because we do offer this fund at lower minimums and it does really democratize exposure to private equity, there is that connotation that, oh, maybe this is a, a solution for just smaller investors. I think what's interesting about our fund is, you know, we're, we're just a little under, under $300 million in assets. Two thirds of the assets in our fund are still from large investors, large families. You know, our, our, our two largest investors are billion dollar single family offices. And the reason why they find the Evergreen Fund so interesting is that it's a great portfolio management tool. You know, one of the one of the most cumbersome things about investing in traditional private equity investments is in a traditional private investment fund, you commit capital, you don't invest capital, you commit capital and then the private and the private equity firm then tells you once they find the target investment when to to make that investment and then when that investment is sold when the money comes back to you. And so it's really difficult in private markets to maintain a specific allocation to private markets. One of the biggest complaints we get from our, our investors in our traditional private equity business is we'll sell a company and it's you know even if it's a great outcome our investors are now under allocated to the asset class because we just sold that company and we've given the capital back to them. A lot of investors frankly want to make a, a targeted allocation to private equity whether it's 5%, 10% or 20% and maintain that allocation. And that's where uh, an evergreen fund can be a really efficient tool because we take capital every month and we have the ability to always be a, a place for liquidity when investors have it. On the expense item that you mentioned, I think it's really interesting too. We actually think that we are one of the least expensive options in the private equity market. We do not charge an incentive fee. A lot of the direct investments that we make are done on what's called a no fee, no carry basis. We're able to get in at lower fees and we think on, a, on both an absolute headline and look through basis, we are one of the least expensive ways to access the private equity market. And I think that really hits on your third point in that we are not a fund of funds. A fund of funds is essentially just a fund that invests in other funds. And while fund of funds create diversification, they also create two layers of fees. And over half of our portfolio is invested directly into private businesses, not through a fund structure. And I think that's a very inexpensive way to access the private markets and a very efficient way to get capital on the ground. And I think because investors have recognized that a, the fees are, are are very reasonable. B, we get capital on the ground very quickly, and it's an efficient structure. That's why we've had a, a pretty wide range of investors, both large and small, that have uh, accessed the fund. Great, now great, great response, Jeremy. Really appreciate that. Let's switch gears a little bit and look at the current and future landscape for private equity. I already talked about how difficult it's been for <laughs> public markets, and looking at the Bow River Evergreen Fund. Down just under, you know, sorry, up just under four percent year to date. And so, curious, what moves or how did you position the portfolio entering twenty twenty two to deliver such strong results on a relative basis? Yeah, thanks for asking, Chris. And I think you know you highlighted some of this in your earlier remarks that you know it's it's a challenging market. You've got this sort of dual headwind of rising rising inflation, rising interest rates. You combine that with slower economic growth. And, and what we would call it in some ways is a normalization. I do think that the Fed really underestimated how sticky and how high inflation would get. 
But some of this is a normalization of what needs to occur in the labor market, in the housing market. And what we think is that in an environment where interest rates are three or 4%, if you actually zoom out and you look back, not just three years, but five years, 10 years, 20 years, and 30 years, private equity and private businesses have been able to be very profitable over the past 30 years, even in interest rate environments that are 3% or 4%, even where you know inflation obviously very high today, 8%, north of 8% on CPI, core north of 6%. But to the extent that inflation can moderate over the next 12 months, and we think it will, we think high quality businesses will really, really do well. What's happened in the last few years, when you have artificially low interest rates and very low inflation, it creates an environment for low quality businesses to still do well. And so what we think happened over the last several years was that lower quality companies lower quality sponsors and private equity firms were able to still make a lot of money in 2020 and 2021. But as the world normalized and we saw this normalization coming, what we did is we really wanted to de-risk the portfolio and high grade the portfolio. So what we did last year was we started this really in March of 2021, was we started to only invest in what we call buyout businesses. If you think about private markets, there's really three segments that make up private equity. There's venture capital, which you can think about as very early stage companies. There's growth equity, which you can think of as companies that are generating revenue but are not yet profitable. And then buyout companies, which are profitable cash flowing businesses. We stopped investing in growth equity. We did no investments in venture capital, which has always been a small part of our fund. It was never more than 20%, but we essentially cut that allocation nearly in half. The other thing that we did was we started to go more senior in the capital structure. So even though we were investing in equity, we were investing in preferred equity, we were investing in senior equity. And we did that to mitigate some of the higher multiples that we saw last year. And the third thing that we did was we started to sell off some of the positions that had really, really ran quite a bit in 20 and 21. We engaged in what's called a secondary process where we took some of our private assets and sold them to other investors that were looking for exposure. And so we were able to meaningfully de-risk the portfolio by A, not investing in what we thought were the frothiest segments, which was venture capital and growth equity. B, going more senior in the capital structure in the in the cash flowing businesses where we were investing. And then C, by, by de-risking the portfolio, by selling off some of our higher growth, higher risk assets. And then when we've continued that in 2022, where we've built up some dry powder, we think that 2023 and 2024 back to my comment earlier on vintage years, could be very interesting uh, years to put money to work. And we're really positioning the portfolio for that. Great. And I think one advantage of the Evergreen structure, like the Bow River Evergreen Fund, is it gives investors the opportunity to dollar cost average into private equity like they can in the public markets, which has proven to deliver superior results over the long term of investing, especially when you're buying at flat or depressed prices. So when you receive that recovery, you, you get to benefit. So I think that's just an additional added benefit, especially in this environment. But I want to switch gears really quickly. I know we're running short on time and want to talk about the importance of due diligence. And you, you hit the nail on the head earlier that the second word in private equity is equity. And really the main difference between public and private is, is just that private equity is private. There's not as much access to information. And that also creates an opportunity for an information advantage, but also speaks to the importance of doing 
a much thorough level of due diligence. Can you speak a little bit about uh, the importance of due diligence at Bow River Capital's level when making investments and how you leverage the investment consultant Axiatory Cove to help in that? uh, It's a great question, Chris. And I think this is probably the most important topic we've discussed today is that public information, public equities, there's public information, private markets, there's not. And so really, it's very difficult to make an informed decision. That's why it's really important for us on our fund. We've we've hired an investment consultant called Axia. They are a consultant to some of the largest pension plans in, in the country and even in the world. And we're able to leverage their access and expertise to information. And also, I think it's important from the work that you do, Chris, at, at Centura Wealth, that it's really important to really analyze and do the diligence. This is not... Uh, a mutual fund where you can just pull up a Morningstar report and there's not a lot of similarity. I mean, the, the, the private markets are so heterogeneous. The, the 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 dispersion between winners and losers in private markets is infinitely greater than what it is in the public markets where you have a lot of assets that sort of cluster around the mean. So not only is it important for us as we think about investing in private companies, I think it's important for your listeners to know that it's really important for advisors, investors that are doing the work to to look at evergreen funds, to do a lot of diligence on the managers and and their approach, because there's very different approaches to private markets. And we think that it's really important to get that diligence um, component uh, buttoned up. Thanks, Jeremy. And you know, speaking speaking of of Centura, we we tend to pride ourselves on incorporating institutional level due diligence process and talk to our clients about it all the time. You just went through it. So can you can you talk to me a little about uh, Bow River Capital's experience going through Centura's due diligence process? Yeah, Chris, you know, it was a very, very thorough process. And I can just sort of give a, you know, a, a real-time example. And, and we actually think it was good because it's a process that made us better as a firm. There's a lot of questions that you guys asked through your diligence process that we knew the answers to, but we had never really documented and put down on paper. And without naming names, I can say that we... We just recently got approved by a very large national consultant, and their diligence process was not nearly as thorough as that of Centura Wealth. And I think that that's a testament, uh, Chris, to, to you and to your team in terms of how seriously you guys take these investment allocations. And I think that um, you know it's really a model of what other firms should adopt. And I think by going through that process for Bow River, it made us better investors um, made that process better, but I think it's a, it's a testament to how thorough that process has been for you guys. Great, great for that insight. I appreciate it, Jeremy. That's all the time we have today, Jeremy. I, I want to thank you for coming on, participating in the podcast, you know, enlightening everyone on the private equity space, and introducing everyone to the Bow River Evergreen Fund. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. Jeremy and Chris, this is a great podcast. A lot of great information. Jeremy, thanks for the shout out to Centura. I've been working with them for quite some time with this podcast and they are outstanding. And it's been, it's been a fun ride. Chris, thank you so much for facilitating this and bringing Jeremy on as a great guest. And our last thank you, of course, goes to you listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Live Life Liberated podcast with the team from Centura Wealth Advisory. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when the team comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. And we humbly ask you to share this podcast, rate it, and leave a review, as this actually does help others find the show. Again, thank you for listening today. For everyone at Centura Wealth Advisory, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time. 
Thank you for listening to the Live Life Liberated podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Centura Wealth Advisory. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Centura Wealth Advisory, Centura, is an SEC-registered investment advisor with its principal place of business in San Diego, California. Centura and its representatives are in compliance with the current registration and notice filing requirements imposed on SEC-registered investment advisors, in which Centura maintains clients. Centura may only transact business in those states in which it is notice filed or qualifies for an exemption or exclusion from notice filing requirements. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Tax relief varies based on client circumstances and all clients do not achieve the same results.